Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast where I, P.T. Imstad, and my good friend Rachel Nisbet focus on the lesser discussed and sometimes underappreciated Jallo. How's your week been, Rachel? Yes, been good. Managed to get my hair cut, so I'm happy. Oh, the highlight of my week. Yeah, my hairdresser with a mask on, but um, yeah, no, that was good. Just doing that, went to the pub, exciting things like that. So I can't complain. So back to normality. Yeah, like not completely. Or almost. Almost. It's starting to feel a wee bit more normal, and it's nice just being able to do things that I used to be able to and correct my awful DIY haircut. So yeah, it's been quite a good week. What about yourself? I've also had a taste of normality actually because I went to the cinema for the first time in quite a while now. Ah, did you? I didn't realise that. I feel we didn't talk about this in the week. We're holding it back for the show. Yeah. <laughs> so I went with uh, my good friend Jesper and we saw the follow-up to Train to Busan Peninsula. Ah. I like Train to Busan but I wasn't blown away like a lot of people were so maybe I'm not the best person to sort of assess it but I thought it was entertaining but nothing that made any kind of deeper impression on me but it was good. That's good you enjoyed it. Sometimes that's just what you want, isn't it? Especially on your return to the cinema, something that's entertaining enough that passes the time and don't have a negative experience from. Yeah, and it was a good excuse to have a couple of glasses of wine with a good friend as well, so not complaining. Yeah, no bad thing. So, and proper social distancing, because I think there was six of us in the cinema. So Yeah, because it's that thing of people being unsure whether to go back or not. Because I've seen a few yeah. people here have gone, like someone at my hairdressers was saying that she'd gone, but it was the same story, people not really going. And here, we have to wear masks at cinema I don't know about you if you have to wear masks Um, so I guess for some people that's an issue it's not like I don't mean it in a it's bad wearing a mask thing just in a yeah sometimes people feel it's a bit uncomfortable like for an hour and a half or probably three hours knowing films and adverts these days yeah have you watched anything good since we last spoke you know what I watched last night this is typical like Rachel coming out with things that are unexpected Um, but I, I watched King Kong last night the 2005 remake of it Ah, the Peter Jackson one. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big Peter Jackson fan, to be honest, and it's one of those films that just passed me by at the time, but I actually quite enjoyed it for what it was. I was was quite surprised because I had low expectations. I can't remember what I was watching it for. I think it was my sister and I have been talking about Adrian Brody and, like, whatever happened to his career. Not in a nasty way, but, you know, and then I thought, oh, give King Kong a watch, and yeah thought for what it was it was pretty decent well shot some yeah, interesting choices but it's been a while since i saw that one mm-hmm. i find like i watch so much in the way of niche cinema like, i'm sure you're the same like like you know a lot of them don't even have english friendly re- releases and you're only kind of getting yeah. half of the story and all these other oddities and things so when you spend so much time watching films like that you seem to sometimes like bypass some of the really big hollywood blockbusters of the time oh definitely so I always, yeah so i always appreciate going back sometimes and filling in these gaps because i feel like i do have quite a lot of obvious gaps like, when yeah. it comes to those kind of films the more mainstream uh, yeah not in, like cinema. not in a pretentious way but no there's just so many all. films isn't there that you spend so much time maybe in, like the 70s and you think oh yeah there were films in the 21st century as well <laughs> i should <laughs> get around to watch it yeah you can't make time for them all can you yeah, it's always the problem there have been a few cool announcements since the last episode as well not jelly but italian genre releases and note that we're excited about so do you want to do you want to start yeah um well there's some exciting news with nucleus films who have officially announced their next release which is of pasquale festa campanile's 1968 catherine spack sex comedy the libertine and it's exciting for me because i was very honored to be asked to contribute to the release with an essay on the film's production design um so that was a really cool project to do like very happy to be asked in a great company um but like regardless of any involvement that i have because that's a minor thing i just really urge people to pick this one up because it's it's such a wonderful 
utterly charming film and it's as funny and pertinent today yeah. as it was back then and the new release looks really gorgeous so definitely recommend pre-ordering that and picking it up when it hits the shops yeah i'll pre-order that one it's got Very that good. sort of pop art vibe bound of appeal if you like check to the queen or frightened woman there's some stuff to enjoy here as well isn't it yeah very much in that vein uh just like a nice little entertaining sex comedy even if you're not too familiar with the sex comedies of the time it's i think quite a good entry point yeah um, so yeah i think a lot of people that listen to the show would like it let us know what you think if you do pick up we'd be interested to yeah hear. nucleus do some great work and i like the fact that they go for these because that's not an obvious choice but glad that somebody dares to go for these sort of slightly more niche titles yeah absolutely it was they did a great release of death laid an egg and we hope that they do more yeah lady frankenstein as well unusual choices perhaps especially when they were released uh, considering what else was coming out at the time um, but, yeah. but like you say we just appreciate that focus on some of the lesser known titles obviously yeah <laughs> with what we do <laughs> And Cineploys are continuing their impressive run of announcements of Politsuteski with two more titles that haven't been available on Blu-ray before. So it's Franco Prosperi's 1966 crime thriller Professional Killer, starring Robert Webber and Franco Nero, and Bruno Corbucci's Cop in Blue Jeans with Thomas Millian. I think they're out at the end of the month or something. Right. Quite soon. Yeah. Yeah, that's good um, to hear because those sorts of films aren't, well, yeah, they're more in the, the German market puts them out, don't they? And we've had a few yeah. in the UK and the US, but they still not really gain traction like I thought they might have done when they start, started coming out a couple of years ago. So then we always appreciate any company that will put out these films. I suppose the same way as um, Nucleus, just films that you don't hear about as much. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit surprised that there's not more Poliziotesque that have been released, actually, because I thought they would have quite a big market, especially with Mike Malloy's Eurocrime documentary and everything. There's been quite a lot of talk about them, but it's really slowed down and there's not all that much coming out. It's never really materialised, has it? And maybe I'm wrong with this, but I find that those films have more of an appeal to certain demographics as well. Like, I've always said that my husband, like, wouldn't sit down really and watch a shallow, but he really likes those films. And, like, his dad yeah. came over once and he really liked them. Not that I'm saying just men, but, you, you know, like, I think it does tap into a market of people that might not be interested in some of the other offerings in Italian genre cinema. I totally agree. When I had the film club where we showed Italian genre cinema, those were the screenings that were the most popular, the Poliziotesque screenings. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I just I wonder yeah. what that is. Maybe it's just like I said, because they've never really gained enough traction. I don't know if it's also partly to do with what's considered to be like the in thing to like. I mean, Jalo certainly has that appeal yeah. to being quite cult. They have that, that appeal to some degree, but but not to the same extent. No, I think if a few more releases were available, it'd be a bit more popular. I don't know. Until then we have to be really grateful to Cineploid for making sure they, they keep releasing these films. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing else of note, really, and no jally, but hopefully some on the horizon soon. I know, I feel like we keep saying that every episode, right? Oh, we're expecting something soon, and then we come back a month later and go, oh, no jally at the minute. But I think, yeah, as you say, we will see a few announcements at the end of the year, maybe the start of next year. So we'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Steve Lord and EVC into the fold. Thank you so much for coming on board as patrons. We're eternally grateful, so welcome to the club. And if you'd like to sign up to hear our Patreon-exclusive content, including our latest episode on our favourite couples of the shadow, head on over to patreon.com forward slash fragmentspod. As always, in our discussion of tonight's film, we'll be talking about the plot, so please be advised that there will be spoilers in this podcast. 
We'd also like to add an additional warning for those of you not familiar with the film or are hazy on the details that Tropic of Cancer contains real life scenes of animal slaughter, so please be advised. We don't usually do content warnings, but we know animal killing in Italian horror films is something that's distressing for some, and as it's really not simulated here, we thought we'd give it a mention. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the 1972 Shiloh Tropic of Cancer. Und wieder lohnt es sich, mit einer Nutte verheiratet zu sein. Zieh dich an. Mach schon! Wo ist Kotsch? Ich weiß es nicht. Wer ist der Mann im Hintergrund? Keiner kennt ihn. Keiner weiß, wie er aussieht. Er zieht die Fäden in einem Spiel, in dem es um Millionen geht. Inferno unter heißer Sonne. El Tropico del Cancro, aka Tropic of Cancer, or Death in Haiti, or Peacock's Place, is a 1972 shadow directed by Eduardo Malarguia and Jean-Paolo Lumi. What's perhaps most intriguing about Tropic of Cancer is the unusual influence here of the Mondo film, in part due to Lumi's background, which I'm sure Peter will get into in a moment. The Mondo film, for those unfamiliar with the term, is a type of documentary film that emerged from Italy in the 1960s, featuring highly sensationalist and exploitative subject matter such as sex and death. The term Mondo comes from the Italian word for world, as the original Mondo films focused on various taboos and cultural practices from around the world. Mondo Cane, from 1962, is often regarded as the first Mondo film, and was part of a series of documentaries by Giltero Giacopetti, Paolo Cavara and Franco E. Prosperi focusing on various shocking practices such as surgeries, tribal initiations and animal sacrifice. The majority of Mondo films are comprised of a mixture of real and stage footage presented to the viewer as real, with voiceover explaining and commenting on on on-screen events. And the influence of the Mondo film is evident in Tropic of Cancer, with documentary-style footage, sort of faux realism, used in the film of voodoo ceremonies and cockfighting, typical sorts of practices featured in the Mondo film. Tropic of Cancer exhibits the other inequality of the Mondo film, in which another culture is portrayed as peculiar and different and something to shock supposedly more refined Western sensibilities. But despite these Mondo-like elements, Tropic of Cancer is still very much a product of the post-Argento giallo cycle, displaying hallmarks of traditional 1970s Italian murder mystery, albeit transposed to an otherworldly setting. So Tropic of Cancer is very much a marriage of styles, arguably made more apparent by the involvement of two directors coming from different perspectives. As you said, this is an interesting one because the film is not attributed to a single director, but two. And as is often the case when directorial credits are shared, it tends to develop different views on exactly who did what. But let's start at the beginning. Gianpaolo Lomi was born in Livorno on February 4th, 1930, and moved to Brazil at the age of 23. began his career in the film industry as an assistant cameraman on an expedition to the Amazon in the mid-50s and worked on several documentaries. And he was also working as an assistant to Italian actor Adolfo Celli, who was living in Brazil at the time. Lomi was introduced to Gualtiero Giacopetti by a friend and was asked to organise filming of Goodbye Uncle Tom, which Giacopetti and Prospero were discussing filming in Brazil. So when the necessary permits didn't come through, Lomi had to start looking for another location, going around the Caribbean, eventually ending up on Haiti where the film was shot, Lomi being credited as production manager and 
assistant director. He was keen to return to the island and came up with the idea for a giallo set in an exotic location. Just exactly how the film came into fruition is somewhat hazy, but from what I can make out from the official documents from the Archive of State and some conjecture, my best guess is that Lomi brought the idea to producers Pino de Martino and Andrea Di Sanguigliano. They were in favour of the idea and had a treatment written for the film. However, Lomi had limited experience as a director. As I said earlier, he had just shot a couple of documentaries, no feature films. So the producers paired him with the more experienced Eduardo Mularia, with whom de Martino had worked several times. The Sardinian-born Mularia was born on December 10th, 1925, and graduated in law. Like so many other Italian directors that we've discussed, he started out in journalism, gradually becoming involved in the business through commercial short films. After a few years of working as an assistant director, he made his feature debut with the Sardinian set drama Le Due Leggi, 1962. He would direct films in different genres, but went on to specialise in westerns, directing nearly a dozen under the name Edward G. Muller. A few of these star Brazilian actor Antonio Luis de Tefe Bonholz, better known as Anthony Stefan. The two had come up with a basic story idea for Tropical Cancer, and Stefan was also cast as one of the leads idealistic Dr. Williams. The trio then proceeded to write the script together. The division of labour in terms of directorial duties remains somewhat unclear and a point of contention. Lomi claims he directed most of the film under Malaria's supervision, while Malaria, on the other hand, stated that he shot the majority of the film, with Lomi only being responsible for the Mondo and documentary style sequences. Many of the players have passed away at this point, so it's difficult to ascertain exactly who did what, and perhaps it doesn't really matter now. It's interesting to hear about that, because whenever you see two directors director's names flash up you automatically think yeah who is responsible for what and especially in a film like this which I'm sure we'll get into where it's quite evident that there's different styles almost competing at times yeah. just what what you said um kind of shed some light on it and you can probably make your own assumptions about who was involved in what aspect yeah despite obviously the conflicting reports yeah like you say I, there are quite different styles on display in the film so you can definitely see that there's an influence from two different directors yeah it certainly doesn't come across as a film where one person's credited and another person's directed it and that initial person has been credited not really had any involvement it does feel like it's a mixing pot of two different directorial styles so it's interesting in that regard because I can't really think of many films that have that conflicted directorial it's usually uncredited. It's it's not all that many films that are credited with with two directors. Yeah, you'd expect one person would take the credit, and then the other person would be appearing in an interview like twenty years, thirty years later, complaining that they never got their due. Yeah, uh, because it was like that in um, the murder clinic, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. What sprung to mind for me was the whole fiasco around that. Well, I'm getting off topic now, but yeah, there was a film that I was researching like a month ago, and there were similar issues about yeah who directed it, and it's it's like you say, it's very hard to find evidence. Because even if you speak to the people involved, they're going to give you conflicting stories. Mm, memories tend to change over time as well. And I guess it's not all that surprising that people would like to see that they're sort of credited for their work and maybe you remember it as a bit more than it really was. Yeah, yeah, completely. So interesting nonetheless to try and speculate on these things. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis for those who haven't seen the film? Or Yep, I'll, I'll just give a brief synopsis as always. I don't think I've mentioned every character in the film here because there's so many different characters and things going yeah. on but I tried to give a bit of a brief synopsis. So the talented Dr Williams has resided at Port-au-Prince Haiti for several years devoted to the clinic he works in as a doctor. However Williams has a potentially lucrative sideline as a drug producer and his latest discovery a hallucinogenic with great erotic potential has attracted the interest of numerous parties who've arrived on the island in 
in pursuit of the purchase of the drug. However, Dr. Williams refuses to sell the formula, forcing the interested parties into obtaining the drug by any means. Meanwhile, Miami-based couple, Fred and Grace Wright, have arrived on the island for a much-needed holiday to revive their ailing marriage. Fred, an old university friend of Williams, meets with the doctor and introduces him to his wife. The group soon find themselves in the company of other Americans on the island, from the wealthy eccentric Mr. Peacock to the mysterious Mr. Garner and the suspicious Praetor and his henchman Murdoch. As the hunt for the drug intensifies and the bodies start to sack up, the Wrights and Dr. Williams find themselves tangled in an elaborate web of deceit and double-crossing. Are Fred and Grace as innocent as they seem, or has their arrival in Haiti been brought on by more nefarious means? So maybe we should talk a little bit about the main players... Yes, so we have a few main players, don't we? And then quite a lot of side characters. So we'll just concentrate on the main people of the piece. As you mentioned, Anthony Stephan plays Dr. Williams, but we've already talked about him and his interesting life in the Crimes of the Black Cat episode. So rather than repeating his biography, we point you in the direction of that episode if you want to know more about the Italian-Brazilian actor. Grace Wright is played by Anita Strindberg, who was born Anita Eadbay on June 21st, 1937, not May 29th, 1938, as the IMDb erroneously claims. She grew up on sodomalmans.com and was discovered when the internationally renowned photographer Philip Hausman did a feature for Time magazine where he shot women from different countries around the world. Anita became front page news in Sweden and was quickly signed up as the hostess for a new TV show called Kvittele Dubbelt, essentially Double or Nothing based on the American $64,000 question. This quickly led to a lead in an upcoming Swedish comedy, Susamo Gubbana. The film was shelved for a couple of years, and when it finally opened a couple of years later, it was it flopped and was mauled by the critics. She'd also got married and had a child in the meantime, so she worked as a model, a conference hostess, and other jobs before visiting an aunt on the island of Mallorca, where she remained for a few years. A friend convinced her to come to Italy, where Anita initially set up a design firm in Milan. When Anita chose to leave the firm a couple of years later she was persuaded to come to Rome to pursue an acting career. Her first Italian role and the only one which is credited under the Swedish name was in Massimo Franciosa's Quella Chiara Notte d'Ottobre, A Clear October Night where she has a small non-speaking part and is killed off by Benantino Venantini. Her first role of note was in Lucio Fulci's Elicit in a Woman's Skin which led to Abyss in 1971. She appeared in her first two Italian leads in Sergio Martino's The Case of the Scorpion's Tale and Tullio de Michele's The Two Faces of Fear, as well as appearing in a small but memorable role in Lucha Fulci's The Eroticist before joining the cast of Tropical Cancer. I could go on for quite some time talking about Anita, but I think we'll leave her for now and return to her in another episode. Yeah, she's got such an interesting backstory and I didn't really know anything about it until we became friends and it's it's been so interesting hearing over the years what you've discovered about her and I'm sure people would be really interested in hearing more. Um, I'm sure the opportunity will present itself to talk about her later life but yeah, such a fascinating woman, isn't she? And all yeah. the things she was involved with because you would naturally assume that she'd just been in acting but things like the design firm are really interesting to hear about. Yeah, I really enjoy finding out small bits and pieces like that about people lives and what they've been doing outside of acting because obviously a lot of these actors did it for, for a few years or at least were on top for a few years and then had to do other stuff so we don't know much about that. Yeah and I think we're very conscious with the section of the podcast that sometimes we are 
saying the same sorts of things and it's just purely because the information's not always out there and yeah there's all these gaps in people's filmographies and lives where you're not quite sure what they got up to you're not really sure if their personal lives or where they were living and things like that so it's it's really nice when you are able to uncover these small details and flesh somebody out beyond their film roles yeah saying that my pick is a bit more your traditional one because i couldn't find loads of information but i'm trying my best (laughs) so fred wright grace's husband is played by gabrielle Tinti. Gabrielle Tinti was born as Gastoni Tinti in Molinella, Italy in 1932, coming from humble provincial beginnings. Blessed with good looks and a confident interpretive ease, Tinti began working as an actor in the 1950s, working with esteemed Italian directors such as De Sica, Bava and Frida, alongside international directors like Claude Chabrol and Robert Aldrich. Throughout the 1960s, Tinti appeared in numerous historical epics, which his strong features and commanding presence were well suited for. Directors that worked with Tinti remarked on his striking physicality, which photographed exceptionally well, in particular his expressive aquamarine eyes. Despite Tinti's prolific work in Pepla, alongside other forms of genre cinema, he's probably best known in cult cinema circles for his numerous performances in the Emmanuel series, appearing in the likes of Emmanuel in Bangkok, Emmanuel in the Cannibals and Emmanuel in America. During the production of his first Emmanuel film, Black Emmanuel in 1975, he met Indonesian beauty Laura Gemser and the two fell madly in love, marrying the following year in 1976. They remained married up until Tinti's death of a heart attack in 1990 at the age of 59. As an actor, Tinti was regarded as an incredibly hard worker, a work ethic attributed to his humble provincial beginnings and drive to succeed. Throughout the course of his career, Tinti appeared in around 140 productions and worked consistently until his death. Director Pupiavati remembers Tinti in the 1960s as a sought-after actor who regularly took part in Ugo Tonazzi's tennis competitions, where his striking physicality was on display for all to see. And I actually found myself watching videos of Tonazzi playing tennis at 3am the other night, so you can find yeah footage of those very kind of tennis competitions um, online which is nice it's another one of those strange discoveries but I didn't see Tinti there sadly but I think that wee anecdote just shows how much of a success Tinti made of his life and succeeding as a well-regarded actor marrying well moving in these glamorous circles of the 1960s and beyond and he worked hard but he certainly reaped the benefits and it's it's such a shame that he died so young um, because he certainly appears to have been a well-loved man and highly thought of he's such a likable presence isn't he yeah yeah just so commanding like you know when when I was watching this film and I would say this actually about Strindberg, Stefan and Tinti they just really command the screen and I think it's it's good direction as well isn't it because you get all those close-ups of them and um, which really yeah. frames their features and expressions um, but yeah they they all definitely have screen presence certainly do there are a few couple of secondary characters mm-hmm. as well that maybe deserve a mention at least even if they don't get a full bio other players of lesser significance in Tropic of Cancer are Umberto Rajo known for his turn in Jali such as Dario Argento's The Bird of the Crystal Plumage and Cat and Nine Tales as well as Emilio Miragula's The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave and Lindsay's Oasis of Fear and the aforementioned The Crimes of the Black Cat which we've previously discussed um, but he was in countless other Italian genre films wasn't he yeah apparently he was cast because Lomi thought he was the least suspicious person he could think of which I find quite to me he seems quite suspicious I think he's got that undercurrent of unease doesn't he as an actor yeah he does he's very good though yeah one of those people that never gets the big role but they're always very good at those secondary roles for sure and there's also Mr Peacock who's played by American Gordon Filio who's not a professional actor but he was a friend of Lomi's since the goodbye Uncle Tom days he's an undeniable presence in the film and it's it's kind of difficult to understand why he wasn't cast in further roles to be honest with you yeah it's, it's funny that you say like he's not a professional actor because 
he certainly has screen presence and you could see him fitting into those sorts of more like comic roles and loads of different types of films so it is quite yeah. a surprising revelation he's so competent in this film and Stelio Candeli as Mr. Garner um, who's probably best known for his role as Frank and Demons yeah that's about it isn't it there's a few other actors with credits um, but to be honest with you a lot of the secondary characters that appear here this is their only credited performance so not much else to say and they come and go in the film so yeah, there's not even really much to say about their characters, to be honest. So, I mean, it's, it's got quite a cast, this film, but I mean, a lot of the characters you could arguably say are underutilised or really just not worth discussing in, in relation to the film's plot because they have little bearing on it. Yeah. So what's perhaps most apparent in Tropic of Cancer is the othering quality of the location of Port-au-Prince and what I'd refer to as the eroticised other in which the Haitian locals are viewed as different, uncivilised, and almost as a source of perverse fascination for the tourists of the island. Many Jale feature international locations, predominantly in Europe, but they tend to be portrayed very differently to how Haiti and its residents are depicted in Tropic of Cancer. When Fred and Grace first arrive on the island, Fred says, I wonder if Christopher Columbus had a similar reception, which is a bit of a questionable statement that feels rather colonial in nature. Fred immediately starts taking photos of the locals, like their exotic wildlife, and he and his wife seem to treat the people of Port-au-Prince in a rather uncomfortable way, maybe say slightly beneath them, and they take this kind of almost like servant role to the tourists. The locals are depicted as fairly primitive and embody racially questionable qualities. They're depicted as clumsy and stupid, and they're frequently blamed by the white characters, frequently regarded as incompetent, they're bad drivers, they're reckless with people's safety and with objects, you know, like in the scene um, in the, the rum bar slash distillery. Arguably, the t- tourists see the locals as beneath them and uncivilised. Dr. Williams later expounds on this very point, questioning if this is in fact a good thing as they have been untainted by the so-called civilised West. The character of Grace initially seems enraptured by the idea of the locals and their practices, gleefully insisting that she has to see a video ceremony, almost exhibiting the sort of titillation towards this, um, in her eyes, peculiar practice. But for the majority of the film, she spends most of her time seemingly fearful of the locals, wanting to be rescued by Fred or Dr. Williams. In the scene where she's in the market, she feels under threat from the locals, despite Dr. Dr. Williams' reassurances that the locals are harmless and merely want to sell their goods to her. We don't really see Haitians in positions of power, but rather as servants or curiosities to the tourists. When we do see a local man in a position of power in the form of a police officer, he's shown to be corrupt, which plays into some questionable ideas about Haitians and corruption, again playing on negative stereotypes. Corruption in Haiti was pretty rampant in the 1970s under Duvalier's rule, with it being said at the time that corruption is ingrained in Haitian politics. In Tropic of Cancer, the police corruption on display adds the sense of lawlessness that exists throughout the film, but the white characters often view this as a product of the ineffectual structures in place in Haiti, compared to what they view as their more progressive society. In Port-au-Prince, it feels like every man is for himself, and that one must take the law and their personal safety into their own hands, but that arguably also applies to the tourists. It's hardly surprising that a film made by a European film crew in in Haiti in in the 1970s feels a bit dated in terms of race relations, and that, like you say, there's some fairly rampant racism on display here. I think it's kind of interesting to compare it to another one of Anita's films that she made in 1974, the Ghana-set drama The African Deal, Contact, which really is a, a night and day difference in terms of how that film's director, Giorgio Bontempi, handle these issues compared to Lomi and Moralia because it very much feels like a Mondo angle in making sure that they make everything as sort of strange and threatening and weird as as they possibly can. I think that's quite an interesting comparison, actually. And even though there's that Anita Strindberg connection, I never really thought about this film in regards 
to that performance and the themes and ideas on display there. Um, so that's a really interesting comparison. In this film, like you say, there's none of the locals have like a positive role. They're either there as threats or they're corrupt or they're criminals. But in the African deal, it's very much different. The white characters are the corrupt people and the, the one sort of stand-up character is the black man. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it didn't have to display these sort of dated views. I think they've really taken them, these elements and sort of gone with them. Yeah, no, you make a really good point because I think there's a lot of hand-waving where we look at some of these films and go, oh, well, that was just a product of its time. But I think, you know, we've not really touched much on race relations before and racial depictions in these films but we certainly talked about you know um, LGBT characters and women and how there's differences in these films some of them are a lot more progressive than others so you don't really want to get into a position where you go oh Tropic of Cancer is a product of its time because evidently there's other films from the periods that were far more progressive and fair in their treatment of um, other ethnicities um, yeah. so I think that's really important that the point that you've raised and Tropic of Cancer is very much the story of this group of tourists and their duplicitous backstabbing ways and we never really actually see much in the way of the Haitians themselves so they're very much background characters and as I said earlier they're the ones that are depicted as clumsy and corrupt so yeah there are opportunities as you said where there could have been more fleshed out characters in regards to the locals but they're just completely in the background and really don't focus much in the plot so the character of Adonis is perhaps a bit more prominent here but he's presented very much in this eroticized fashion fetishized by the white female characters and throughout the film we see the locals depicted as naked and partaking in rituals that the foreigners regard as odd and it's one of those tropes that we tend to unfortunately see which again plays into this idea of the eroticized other like I'll be honest it does make for uncomfortable viewing in this context I think you know having a discussion about this film we're very very mindful about that and sometimes you do get films from this period and films from you know like decades after that still do this where they kind of sexualize these people and they dub them as primitive and it's yeah it's not nice to witness but I'm sure we'll get into the film's sexual elements themselves um, in a bit as well. But I just wanted to raise one more point that I think it's important to note that on the surface, it feels like there's this othering of Haitian culture. And I definitely think that's true. I think that's a deliberate aspect of the film. But there are comparisons made at points between the supposedly primitive society that the tourists voyeuristically experience and Western society itself. And um, at the film's end, we see a ritual taking place that Fred explains as a matrimonial rite. But after this matrimonial ceremony takes place, we then see the couple dressed in traditional wedding clothes. We also see animal violence and killing with cock fighting and the ritual slaughter of a bull and a dead cock presented at dinner as a sick joke, which I suppose is done to imply that the Haitians are primitive. But then we have this juxtaposition between these practices with the meat processing plant in Damien, which is run by efficient men in white coats with modern machinery. And it's kind of showing that it's very much two sides of the same coin and that this supposedly enlightened Western way is not necessarily all that different. So there's some tenuous attempts to like highlight the distance that the character put between themselves and the locals as not wholly true um, and that there are commonalities between them but I think the film gets so caught up in that mondo othering element that those bits don't come across very well at all. No, it definitely weighs over to, to the mondo and the other aspects but it's it's an interesting point that you raised and one that I haven't thought all that much about. Yeah, it's probably in there if you look but it, you have to look quite deep to find it really, don't you? 
Exactly. And if you're having to look that deep, it's yeah, questionable, isn't it? And I think it is so lightly touched on that like I certainly don't want anyone to think I'm making the argument that that excuses anything else because that's just a small aspect of me kind of going like, oh, well, maybe you could say that there's these attempts made, but really they don't come across well at all. And it's still very much a problematic film in terms of this, yeah. Yeah, depictions of the Haitians. Certainly. I mean, it sits really uneasily with today's viewer. And it's one of those aspects of the film that I completely understand why it would turn people off from watching it, along with the Mondo elements and the animal violence. Yeah, it's one of those things where we just, we decided we wanted to talk about this film because we thought there was a lot to discuss here. There's so many issues with a lot of these films that we think it's better to discuss them and raise the problems that we have with it or the issues that we think are are there and, you know, compare them to modern day standards. And we're not saying that everything should be compared to modern day standards but I think you know we want we want to look at these films as they were back then and then we also want to give our own perspective on it as a modern audience and some films like this will definitely sit more comfortably with us so we're definitely not saying oh this is a great film and it's fine that this stuff goes on in it but we still think it's worthy of discussion and highlighting those issues oh yeah definitely it is a one-of-a-kind kind of film because there was obviously quite a few thrillers made during the 60s and 70s where they mixed the thriller elements with other genres like literature or westerns or gothic horrors or melodramas or comedies or whatever that were more or less successfully added to them but Tropical Cancer remains the only proper example of a Jalo and a Mondo hybrid I'd say. Yeah no I'd absolutely agree with that which yeah makes it such you know makes it of interest in itself like you said it's very much done in the exploitative mondo vein rather than any kind of sort of anthropological interests you never have to wonder if from which perspective the filmmakers are coming here yeah i mean i don't know if it's partly due to Lomi's background with mondo films but there are some bits of dialogue that are bear with me when i say this but there are fairly informative very broadly speaking like they do almost try and attempt to shoehorn some sort of explanation of these practices and, yeah. and they're, they're very simplistic and some of the things that are said are a bit questionable but it's almost this attempt that Dr Williams makes as the educated westerner who now understands his culture now trying to educate Grace and informing her of all about these different aspects and whether it's you know voodoo or you know like how the Haitians are I think there's like one moment where they refer to voodoo as magic and he says no it's a religion and at least treats it with that kind of reference but then at the same time there's this exploitative element to them all going to a video ceremony like it's it's a dinner show yeah. lacking any sort of of respect there's a few minor references here as well to haitian current affairs uh williams references devalier who i mentioned earlier who is jean-claude devalier and he was the president of haiti during this period prior to jean-claude's rule the infamous francois devalier aka papa doc his father was in charge and in the scene in the police station, you see portraits of both Papa Doc and Jean-Claude Duvalier, which is an interesting time capsule of the period. We don't get much of a sense here of the volatile political climate of the time. And there are small reference to it, but the film seems very much entrenched in that like historical aspect of Haiti, doesn't it? It doesn't seem to align too much with like the modern practices going on at the time. It said there's just a lot of interesting things going on politically here that other than that one reference aren't really, really touched upon. It very much goes into that whole voodoo strand at that point yeah and i suppose it might have been even if they would have wanted to include aspects of contemporary politics it would have been difficult considering the the situation on the on the island as well they might not have been allowed to to film in the first place yeah certainly and i think you know people wouldn't maybe have the best knowledge of it anyway and it's to be honest it's it's not relevant really here but 
it, it's just interesting that they go for those historical um, ideas about Haiti and completely negate any sort of contemporary ideas. You know, like there are people there that are, well, there were there were people there at the time that were in good jobs, educated, you know, like financial centres, all sorts of things. But it's very much like these people are primitive and we are the enlightened Western yeah. tourists. And again, maybe they could have had the opportunity to have a counterbalance there with one of the locals as a more prominent character, but again, also chose not to. In one of the earliest incarnations of the story that's attributed to Malaria and Stefan, the film actually centred around the Haitian policeman, Lieutenant Marvin and Dr. Williams, and their efforts to catch the killer, and both believing that the other one was responsible for the crime. So kind of a confessions of a police captain set up. And with this leading up to showdown and an ending that looked very much like the one that finally made it into the film. But that would have given an opportunity to have a native character that would have been a lot more positive because Lieutenant Marvin is kind of reduced to more or less nothing now, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, that makes, to me, that makes far more sense because I kept thinking when I was doing my notes and watching this, like, it just doesn't knit together very well. And then you hear something like that and that would have made perfect sense. And it would have been that nice marriage of, like, Dr. Williams, the American, with a local Haitian and them teaming up and the, the conflicts that exist there. And they could have had conflicts with those characters rather than reduce them to these quite crass, you know, like, generalizations about Haitian people. Yeah. That's a really interesting bit of uh, tip that I didn't know that. So that's kind of a missed opportunity in that area in a way definitely i wonder why they decided to get rid of that uh, a lot of the time during the early 70s here i'd say that the black actors were in italy at the time they were more or less reduced to being an exotic element in in the film story and sort of sidelined to that so maybe they decided that they weren't quite ready to have a, a black man as a leading man in a film like this yeah quite potentially but i feel like and putting aside the race issues there and maybe that being the reason it would feel more like of a jalo, I think, if that element was put in with them teaming up and, you know, like yeah. the doctor with the policeman. Um, yeah. It does seem more like a trope of that genre. Um, so I think it would have worked in the context of it being a jalo with that addition. So do I. I mean, he's still in the story, but you can sort of feel that he's that his character has been reduced that his part has been sort of cut down from from what it once was yeah because he features in these scenes and then it comes to nothing like you said so it does make you wonder well why he's there and then there's other characters in the film which again have that kind of feel to them where you think was there something else planned for them Grace and Fred are at the heart of the film, so I think it, they were in uh, a little bit of discussion. It's clear from very early on in the film that their relationship isn't a particularly happy one, and the reasons are never really expanded on. There's, there's no backstory, no indication what has brought Grace and Fred to this point. They seem to be going through a marital crisis, with Grace ending up in a kind of love triangle between her husband and Williams, as well as, as you mentioned, the, the young Adonis who she casts longing glasses after. Anita is a good fit for Grace, and I think she makes the most of it. But the problem here is that there's little scope for her to do any kind of heavy lifting when it comes to dramatic scenes. As, as with many female parts in Jello films, and the majority of characters in this particular film, the role's not very well developed. In many scenes, she's reduced to either look longingly at the male cast members, being shot by dead bodies, worrying about the threatening locals, as she said, or being in a state of partial or complete undress and Tinti is as always a likeable presence but the chemistry between him and Anissa is I think it's somewhat lacking maybe somewhat surprising considering Lomi claims they had an affair on set but they don't really feel that 
much like a couple on on the last legs of the marriage, I think, and it's mostly due to the script. Seems like the poolside argument gives us a little bit more insight into the couple, but as I said, Tint is a really likable presence, but chances are that the relationship would have come off as a bit more true to life with a higher calibre actor like, for example, Umberto Orsini. What do you think? No, I'm in complete agreement with you on that. Um... I think Anita Strindberg is always a likeable presence and she manages to be captivating in this film despite her limited role. But yeah, there's no chemistry between them. So the rumour that they had an affair just seems so surprising. I don't know if that's like confirmed or not. Probably correct. Yeah, it's just very, very odd because they don't, as I said, they don't seem to really have much in the way of chemistry. Yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah, you, you just don't really buy them as a couple. They just seem indifferent to one another. There's not much in the way of conflict. So we're not really seeing this lost love or the spark that they once had but then we're not really seeing this fire of like wanting to try and make things work yeah as I said it just feels like indifference a lot of the time yeah um and I don't think Dr Williams and her relationship is particularly believable either to be honest it's kind of difficult to see what she sees in that brooding Williams really isn't it we've discussed before how he's not one of the more expressive genre actors Anthony Stephan but coming off a bit detached watched a couple of his westerns these last couple of days and he works so much better in them because he's often cast as a like a stranger of few words mm. but these roles require a bit more emotional resonance from the characters and it's not really there is it yeah, like you say, there's just there's no connection there between them. And Tinty and Stefan, they don't look the same, but they have quite a similar look. Yeah. And there just doesn't seem to be much point of difference between them. We don't really understand much about Fred's character at all. So it's very hard to care. And I think, yeah, you do make a good point about maybe a better calibre actor for both roles would make this a bit more believable because I don't think the problem's Strindberg. I think it's it's the men that are the problem and the casting of them all together. Just unremarkable, really. The script could have helped out a little bit as well, I think, in terms of backstory or giving some insight into to the conflict or what has brought the marriage to this point. But, I mean, it's difficult to see why Grace would develop an interest in Williams because he's not particularly charming, he's not a particularly pleasant person, and it's difficult to see how she would view like a relationship with him as an out even if she's in a struggling marriage Tinty's not sort of horrible enough to run away from and, and fall in the arms of Williams either is he no no he's not it just seems like a dysfunctional marriage doesn't it but Williams just happens to be there and it's even when they have sex for the first time it, it just seems not like too believable to me that situation that causes that to happen and then Fred's jealousy again it doesn't seem so much based on her but more this threat that he finds that Dr Williams presents to him in terms of maybe like an academic success or you know that he's created this drug and it's you know the possibility of financial riches there's talk of jealousy and sexual dissatisfaction between the couple but yeah never really materializes in any meaning way does it Early on, we see Grace eye up Adonis, who immediately commands her attention and becomes the source of her lust. So we know that maybe she's got a wandering eye or she's unhappy or sexually unsatisfied. The character who's referred to as Adonis, of course, is named after the Greek god of beauty and desire. And he's very much this mythological figure possessing this enigmatic quality and enraptures Grace with his otherworldliness. But that's not really explained a lot, um, well, either, really. Um, we get this idea of Grace's latent sexuality when she eyes him up. And later on in the film, when she learns of the voodoo goddess of Erzuli, she seems captivated by her and this idea of this goddess of love and then that aligns obviously with Adonis the goddess of love in Greek culture and at the ceremony Williams explains that Erzuli becomes one with her followers via dance able to almost possess somebody's body and later on Grace sees a portrait of Erzuli in the market and she's told that 
when her spirit chooses a woman and enters her body, that the woman will know the secret of life and happiness, which doesn't actually transpire for Grace as a character. Williams gifts the painting to her, and shortly after placing it in her hotel room, the infamous hallucination sequence takes place, which feels like Grace's own possession by Azurly. Uh, so there's this melding here of what is perceived to be magic with medicine through the lens of sexual potency. And we kind of question whether Grace's sexual reawakening is the product of voodoo or medicine. And again, like we referred to earlier, it's this conflict between what's perceived to be modern and what's perceived to be primitive. There's other references as well peppered throughout the film in regards to sex. At the Rancho Hotel, the tourists eat a mollusk dish, which supposedly makes, makes men virile. Although Mr. Peacock disputes this, having no personal luck with it after eating it for years, which is kind of humorous moment. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, Mr. Peacock is initially presented as a bit of an eccentric, albeit sleazy character and a source of amusement. But this line about his lack of sexual success, which seems humorous at first, feels a little darker when Williams talks about the peacock gifted to him by Mr. Key Peacock. And Williams quotes Mr. Peacock as saying, I surround myself with these beautiful creatures because I'm ugly and fat, which paints him as a rather sad figure. And it plays into these ideas in the film that everyone's pretty sexually miserable throughout. But yeah, I think there's probably some other references to sex and things you know, like in the food ceremony they take off the bull's bollocks and then that's what they cut off yeah which is another you know like idea of you know magic relating to sex and sexual organs and yeah all the stuff about goddesses but it's never really explained too well as i said we get these moments with dr williams where he tries to explain some of the aspects of voodoo and ceremonial practice but i mean they're very very basic and it feels very much like a ted talk yeah exactly it's just like this is the bit where we're going to try and explain this to the audience and yeah it doesn't always work i'm just gonna say, i don't think we'll put this in the, in the story what i was gonna say was when i went to the video museum in new orleans they said i should make an offering to Urzuli. yeah so they were like oh you can make an offering this is what people do they come and i money gave me some money and he went there you go like you know make an offering the goddess of love and fertility and beauty um but i actually made an offering to dambala which is some sort of like snake god instead so <laughs> There's this kind of joke with like Murray and my friends where like everything's been cursed since that point because you made a, a an offering to a snake god. <laughs> that's unfortunate. Yeah, so that's what the film. I was like, Arzuli, I remember that name because because of that. Yeah. Like so many other things in this film, the script so full. There's so much that's going to happen that they. It feels like they had to cram everything in, so they can't really expand on any themes too much, can they? No, certainly not. It's just everything but the kitchen sink here, which in some ways is a successful approach, but in other ways it just feels like there are strands that don't really go anywhere. It's like the character of Douglas in that. I'm like, what happened to Douglas? I want to know. And that doesn't really, doesn't really get explained very well. And the stuff with Crotz is maybe a bit clumsy in places. Yeah. Um, you've got the characters of Robin and the Adonis and they just all seem very like underdeveloped. So like you say, it's like throwing everything into the mix, but it doesn't really always come off as a coherent plot. Yeah. You mentioned the hallucination sequence and that's, that's a humdinger right there, isn't it? That's the reason to see the film, surely, is that scene in itself is well worth yeah checking out yeah i would assume that if people have seen this film that's the one sequence that they'll remember um yeah it's just it's just an incredibly well executed dream well i, I don't know a, a hallucination sequence i guess is how you'd refer to it isn't it yeah I, I like how it utilizes those freudian ideas about your subconscious making sense of what you experience in your waking like cognitive hours and i love like how we see the ice blocks falling down the stairs because obviously at the start of the film we see the ice blocks falling from the truck 
that nearly take the rights out. So it's like all that's coming to the fore in our mind and we see spiders that we saw in the pool sequence and like the fact that the walls are this vivid red is the same as the the shower that Grace showers in prior to the sequence. So I think it's really cleverly done how all these things come to the fore at that point. Yeah, Grace running through that corridor with the naked black men trying to grab her as well, obviously that sort of threat that she's felt when, when she's been out and about. And then obviously Adonis at the end who sort of glides towards her and tenderly undresses her and embraces her. Yeah, very much a case, like you said, of this eroticised other coming out in that point in the sexual awakening or reawakening of her character because then after that, it's not long before she has sex with Dr. Williams, is it? Yeah. So it's this kind of repression, repressed nature of her sexuality that appears at this point um, and it's just really well done isn't it like that just the visual representation of such yeah it's obviously very reminiscent of the opening sequence in uh, Elicit in a Woman's Skin which obviously became Anita's breakthrough role but like you say it's really really well done and also both scenes are sort of alluding to the pent-up sexual frustrations and forbidden desires so it's very hard to imagine that Lomi and Malaria weren't inspired by Fulci there yeah I certainly think that's the comparison I think that well I imagine that'll spring to most people's minds when they see it and it's just it's, it's really cool like the psychedelic tone that the scene has like they really nail that hallucinogenic like aspect with those like kaleidoscopic sh- shots that convey the sense of delirium and yeah like yeah. as we said the blossoming of grace's sexual desire or the realization of her sexual desire and her succumbing to these repressed desires which of course never really come to fruition in terms of adonis that's unrealized in the film itself but it's almost her allowing herself on a psychological level to let go or to experience yeah. those feelings really well put together sequence i'm a sucker for hallucination and nightmare sequences so this is this is right up there absolutely they're some of the best and this is arguably one of the best of those so as we said we know that there's a lot of issues with the film and we completely understand why people might not want to watch it or wouldn't want to watch it again blah 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 but um yeah this I think if you watch it, this one scene makes it worthwhile, doesn't it? Yeah. There's also a quite considerable body count in this film. I didn't count it, but I think there's about 10 deaths or something. Yeah, I think it's about 9 or 10, isn't it? Yeah. So not all of them on screen. In some of them, you only see the aftermath as Williams or Grace discovers the bodies. But there are a number of quite effective murder sequences and point of view stalking sequences as well. There's sort of a fisheye lens there. I'm thinking especially of the murder of Mr. Peacock when he's out running in, I don't know, is it a marsh? Yeah, yeah it? No, I think it's like a, yeah, like a marshland type thing, isn't it? With the hot sun beating down. Yeah, that's quite effective. And also the, the strangulation of Mr. Parker there in slow motion is quite an effective sequence. Yeah, yeah. Like when I, I made my notes about memorable scenes in the film, it was, yeah, Mr. Peacock's death, the meat pro- processing plant sequence. Um, Like obviously the voodoo ceremony is interesting. Like I'm not saying it's it's okay. Like maybe that's me playing into, you know, voyeuristic tourist type role, but um, that's certainly one that's memorable. Um, And I really like yeah. the dinner scene as well. Just it's, I think it's a nice way of establishing the characters and their mm. interactions between one another and setting off the strand with Praetor and Murdoch. Like I think that's really well done and the humour that comes across. I think yeah. I did put in my notes something about how I, th- I thought that the film sets that scenario up quite well and introduces people. Like I know there's some characters that don't really have any they don't have really any relevancy, but I think the way kind of that group of characters is established is effectively done yeah it brings all the characters in it's very much like uh, like the opening sequence of the fifth chord where all the characters appear in, the, in this new year's eve party so you've seen them all 
basically. And it's the same with the dinner sequence of the hotel here. Yeah, it's a nice comparison. Because when we talk about memorable scenes, I guess it's natural to gravitate to these set piece like murders. But sometimes it's just nice to have a scene which establishes a character or provides a bit of exposition or whatever. We, yeah kind of appreciate those beats where things are a bit quieter and you don't always have to have something um, extravagant going on. Should we talk a little bit about the plot? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, attempts. Yeah, we'll talk about the plot. It's just because if you look closer at the plot, it's it's kind of flimsy and it's unnecessarily complicated, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's why I mean, we've kind of talked around the plot for so long because it's not the most coherent of plots. It's certainly not. I mean, these, like you mentioned, the, all these people end up on the island because they're chasing this MacGuffin formula that Williams has developed and uh, Williams is unwilling to sell, as you said, because, and I love this, because as Peacock says, he's plagued with idealism. <laughs> I love that line as well. It's such a brilliant yeah. Yeah, like, moment. I've rewatched this a couple of times now and it's it's almost impossible to write it down because there's so much going on plot-wise here and dead bodies showing up who you're not quite sure who they are and you find out later on and it's just, yeah. Yeah, I think I said to you like the other day, I was like, can I have another day, please? to watch this film for the however many time just to make sense of some details even when you're writing notes down it's not like immediately apparent what happens like say like dead bodies that you're not quite sure who they are and abrupt endings with things tied up very quickly and we've both seen this film numerous times before so it's not like it's not like we're new to the film i mean it's difficult to keep up with i can't imagine what a person who's seeing this for the first time will make of it in terms of the plot yes I was going to say, there's a lot of films out there, like a lot of Jalli, where you watch a Jalli initially and then you watch it a second time and then it all becomes clear because you have that information now. This is one of those ones yeah. where you can watch it repeatedly and still not be quite sure of what happened, even with the ending, like in your mind. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm just being stupid. If you are, then so am I. The thing that makes it still work, though, is that we're not really given any time to think too much about what's actually happening, I think. I mean, the bodies are piling up thick and fast and it's it con- it's constantly moving. So you don't really sit and think about it too much. You're just sort of swept away by the next set piece. Yeah, you're not quite sure what's happening, but then someone's getting their face burned off and ending in some sort of pit. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, let's keep going with it. We've talked about fictional science in the shallow before, like in the autopsy episode, I've discussed it and that police are blundering in the dark extra. We kind of occasionally see this throughout and here it's, it's slightly different because it's medical science rather than strange inventions. Um, but we're not quite sure even how that quite works, do we? It's it described, as we said before, as a hallucinogenic with erotic potential. And then there's this adverse side effects, I believe, to it. Is that how it works? Yeah. Lymphodes. I was thinking, I put my notes, I was like, Peter is in more medical and scientific than I am, so you can try and explain to me. Yeah, it, it seems like they're on very shaky grounds with lymphatic fluid ending up in their veins and there's no blood left. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how that works. It's just, and there's no point to that either, is it? Yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just fictionalised science that doesn't really have any bearing on anything. So again, it feels like there's an idea here that's, that they've left in, but that's not really expanded upon. I don't know if it's that weird thing of it just being a perfect mixture of sex and death and this thing of, is she like under the spell of the hallucinogenic or is it? 
some sort of voodoo curse type thing. It's just, I, I like everything in this film. It's a bit heavy, not heavy handed, a bit haphazard even. Yeah, haphazard is probably a good way to describe it, I think. So in the end, the culprit is um, Alberto Rajo, who's the hotel owner. While he's trying to get away, he shoots one of the guests at the local wedding and he ends up having his car set on fire by the wedding crowd. It's just, it's such an abrupt ending, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's like nicely done and he gets his comeuppance, but I mean, because he's almost had a non-existent role, it just feels a little cheap, perhaps. Like, nicely executed, but doesn't feel particularly fulfilling as a conclusion. No, certainly not. Um, Again, it's one of those, introduce the character, make the audience forget about him, and then bring him out as the killer a bit later on. Rojo's character very much feels like that. And then, again, motivations and stuff, it's all down to this MacGuffin formula. So, yeah, it's a bit unsatisfying from that point of view. Yeah. But the one thing I do like about the ending Mm -hmm. is that... um, in terms of the love triangle with Grace being torn between these really underserving men and how she in the end just leaves them all behind. I mean, Fred's been killed and Williams accompanies her to the airport when she's heading back to Miami and they stand and look at each other and perhaps considering giving their budding relationship a chance but in the end she just walks away without looking back and the film ends with Adonis dreamingly watching her plane take off and Grace has been put in these situations where she doesn't have any control and she seems to sort of lack agency so it's nice to see her finally take charge of her own destiny and walk away from these men at least to me. No, no, I I agree with that assessment of the ending and I think it's quite nicely done and considering I'm not that sold on the the bit that comes before it I think that is a nice ending because it doesn't feel like Dr. Williams is really deserving of Grace and their relationship doesn't really feel built on anything as we've talked about before so to give them a positive resolution where they like embrace and decide to stay together just doesn't really fit with what goes on in the film. It feels more likely that Dr. Williams would go back to his clinic and work on his medical discoveries and Grace gets to go and start her life again. Um, and yeah, like that yeah. little touch of Adonis watching her as she goes by. It's like kind of book bookends of the film. Yeah, because he's watching the play land in the beginning, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. And then sees her part. So it's, it's a nice kind of fitting ending with the beginning. I mean, they're not the most likable characters. Like Grace, I don't think, is the most likable character either. So it just feels a fitting no. end that they all go off on their own ways and none of them seem particularly happy. Have we got anything more in terms of the film before we move on? I don't have anything else. I have notes and things, but I don't think there's really anything that I feel like I need to, to bring up. Do you want to head towards the production history? Yeah. Now, as I mentioned before, like the an early incarnation of the story where it was more set to focus on Lieutenant Marvin and Dr. Williams, title of the film was Il Posto del Pavone. Peacock's place. But even though this story outline specifically mentions Haiti, at one point it seems like the film would almost end up in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil instead, most likely due to financing as it was planned as a 70-30 co-production between Quattordici Lulio Cinematografica and the Brazilian Agena. However, by late autumn 1971, the circumstances changed and the production was moved to Haiti and became a 100% Italian production for Quattordici the film's budget was projected at 170 million lira. Usually we haven't got access to this kind of information, but I've been fortunate enough to have access to the film's production notes from the archive estates. So that's why we've got this this time. And out of those 117 million lira, 6 million was allocated to the directors and 15 million projected as costs for principal actors, with a further 6 million for secondary actors. I just find this stuff really fascinating 
fascinating because it's the kind of things that you don't really know anything about. How much did Max make in 1971, 1972? Main titles were 600,000 lira and 3 million lira was budgeted for dubbing. And as I said, two directors usually make productions quite messy in terms of who's done what, but it almost ended up being three because one of the producers, Pino de Martino, or Giuseppe Pino de Martino, who was a former press office clerk who turned to documentary filmmaking, working as a production manager on Sweden, Heaven and Hell, was listed in the official documents as one of the three directors throughout the autumn of 1971. But by the time the production started, his name was removed, and it was just Lomi and Moralia. The initial treatment for the film includes prologue, which was supposed to open the film as well. A synopsis in the film's press book describes a scene where a young woman is taking a shower in her Miami hotel room. She suddenly experiences breathing problems, leaving her staggering towards the balcony where she falls over the railing and plunges to her death before the opening scenes with Grace and Fred arriving in Haiti. An early shooting schedule shows the production was initially supposed to have shot these scenes in Miami for a day before moving on to Haiti. By the time the film went into production, these scenes were cut. It was shot over the course of seven weeks from October 18th to December 4th, 1971, with Anita shooting her last scenes at Port-au-Prince Airport on November 26th, so she could return in order to prepare for Aldolados, who saw her die, which started filming just a few weeks later. A few pickup shots were filmed in Rome, like Mr. Parker's death in the factory. Director of photography was Marcello Masiocchi, who'd previously shot Diva Django for Moralia, as well as Romolo Guerreri's influential 1968 Jalo, The Sweet I'm not sure if any cinematographer did a better job at filming Anita than Maschiocchi. His camera really loves her face and he often, like you mentioned, he often frames her in a tight close-up. But it's not just Anita that looks great. Maschiocchi makes the most of the beautiful Haitian locations and there's plenty of stylish point-of-view shots with a fisheye lens as the killer is either looking for the formula or stalking his victims. Some of the numerous sequences with handheld shots, for example, the voodoo scenes were apparently filmed by Lomi himself, who, with his documentary experience, were able to provide shots that really puts the audience right in the middle of, of the action. And editor Cesare Bianchini was another previous collaborator of Moralia on Viva Django, and he also does a good job making sure the film is constantly moving, and of course, an important part of the famed hallucination sequence. It's certainly a beautifully shot film, like you've just said there, and yeah. you can't really argue with how well filmed it is like yeah those close-up shots of the actress just look so good and then there's all those dynamic shots like you say about the pov which just feel very much in tune with the jalo um but then yeah you have those kind of mondo sequences which feel very much in that style so it's quite interesting that they were able to balance those two jarring well i say jarring styles i think you would typically say that they are jarring because one's like documentary kind of faux realism or realism and then the other is quite stylist stylistic you know psychedelic at points so yeah it's a really really like well shot film considering the issue with trying to capture both aspects of it yeah i'd say they were quite lucky to get Maschiocchi because I, I don't think it would be um, quite as appreciated as it is if he would have had a lesser director of photography. Yeah, certainly. And when, I mean, for both of us, I, we saw, it was it a Greek bit bootleg that used to float about for this one? Oh yeah, yeah. It just makes such a world of difference when you see the Blu-ray. 
Like it just yeah. you really appreciate how well it's shot. And I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but I don't think I really appreciated like how striking Anita Strindberg was until I saw this film. Like like for those reasons yeah. and the way she shot. I mean, just really captivating on screen. I'll touch a wee bit on what you said about some of the settings um in my discussion of the production design. So as already said, Tropic of Cancer was filmed on location in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and as such we see a number of real life locations for Haiti used throughout the film from the ranch Hotel filmed at the Haiti El Rancho Hotel and Casino in Petionville, which still stands today, to Dr. Williams' historical grand house in Port-au-Prince. The house that Williams resides in is an example of Haiti's famous gingerbread houses, elaborate wooden constructions with ornate detailing and embellished trim known as gingerbread trim, which is an architectural hallmark associated with the buildings there. Haiti's gingerbread houses were built between 1880 and 1920 by wealthy residents, and the one that Williams resides in was designed by architect George Boston, and is still standing today, serving surviving the Haitian earthquakes of 1993 and 2010, which tragically damaged many of these houses, which is a real shame as they're such architectural beauties with hist- um, with yeah. such an incredible amount of history. And the shot that when you see um, from Dr. Williams walking up to the to the house, is just incredible, isn't it? Um, it's not like anything you would really typically see in a jalo. Um, like we previously discussed, the Haitian location has this other inequality. It lacks that cosmopolitan feel of a European city that's typically associated with the post-Argento chalet, which may makes it rather distinctive in the discussion of chalet locations. Haiti is purposely used to convey the sense of the rights, in particular grace as fish out of water, both fascinated and confused by the culture they find themselves immersed in. There's a fair amount of chaos portrayed via the environments here, from the throngs of people at the marketplace to the spectators at the cockfight and the lively rituals that take place at various points throughout the film. But there's a real vibrancy and colour to the locations on show. Bright turquoises, yellows, oranges and reds are seen throughout the settings, from the hotel rancho to the rumble. We see those locations alongside more dilapidated buildings that have a real sense of age, succumbing to the harsh tropical climate of the island, also giving an indication to the very different way of life in Haiti and the clashes between the wealthy tourists and the common man. We've already discussed the significance of that beautiful blood-red shower background in the Wright's hotel room, but another thing of note in their hotel room is the door, which appears to have a vidu vivi carved into it as part of a design. Um, you can kind of see those like swirls and like stars, which seem kind of common motifs that you would see in a vidu vivi. Which I don't know if that's like what it's supposed to be but certainly what it looks like to me. A bit of a digression here but the bouquet of exotic flowers that Grace receives prior to her hallucination complement the vivid red shower wall and the red hanging flower that you see in the bouquet is a species of amaranth and I believe it's an amaranthus cadatus which is often referred to as love lies bleeding which I thought was quite an interesting connection when we think about how the events of the film play out. I've said before that I incorporated jello elements to my wedding and I had that very flower in my bouquet which I'm now realizing, oh, cool. which I'm now realizing is a bit dark. If that's I didn't know that was its like English name, and I was like, oh, that's that flower. And then I researched it and went, oh dear. Um, but yeah, the flowers are really cool. I just think that was like a wor- worth mentioning, even if it's a bit tenuous in terms of production design. And um, I'll also give a quick mention to the film's fashions. There's lots of interesting menswear looks, lots of crisp on button shirts, flares, and medallion style necklaces, alongside some fairly typical early 1970s suits. Some with classic safari accent, a la Roger Moore. James Bond claxon goes off. We always have to mention something Roger Moore something Bond related. <laughs> 
Of course, we have to mention Anita Strindberg's wardrobe here as well. Strindberg's beachwear looks were provided by Cole of California and were courtesy of California Fashion International. Cole of California was a very fashionable swimwear brand, very much in the spirit of Hollywood glam. There's quite a few daring looks that Anita Strindberg wears, and you can see similar styles from the era if you look online at the brand's late 1960s and early 1970s designs. Strindberg, as we've already said, was a rather commanding presence, and as such, he carries off some rather striking looks throughout the film, such as... I believe it's a denim suit. It might just be a blue suit, but I think it was denim, <laughs> such as a denim suit with nothing underneath it, a high-collared pinstripe maxi dress, and a black maxi evening gown with diamond clip accents. Strindberg's obviously very Scandinavian-looking with her light blonde hair and blue eyes, so her appearance really accentuates how different she is to the people around her, and her costuming further serves to highlight this idea. And even when she's trying to blend in in her tourist clothes of white peasant tops and sandals and colourful fabric, she still is very much othered compared to those around her. Sticking out is a bit of a sore thumb. But yeah, her costumes are really nice. Like, I say nice, I mean, we wouldn't wear them personally, but I think the costuming's pretty well done here. Um, some quite fashion forward looks and she could kind of wear fashion I think in a different way than some of the other leading ladies just because she's quite statuesque isn't she I mean, maybe yeah. she's not as tall as I think but just maybe her bone structure or something but she always wears clothes yeah. very well I'm just thinking she didn't really get a chance to be such a fashion play did she she didn't have all that many leads did no. she unfortunately yeah and like in who saw her die it wouldn't probably be appropriate if she was going about dripping in furs and couture clothes so it's nice that she gets the opportunity here to kind of wear all those nice 70s fashions yeah i think that just about covers it for production design so uh now you'll be moving on to music i imagine yeah in the featurette shot in haiti on the camera obscura dvd release of the film lomi claims that mario nashimbene was initially contracted to provide the film soundtrack According to the director, they disliked his work and it was substituted with music by Piero Umiliani. The official documents from the Archive of State doesn't actually mention Nashimbene, but he might well have been involved in an early stage of the production. Umiliani provided a wonderful lounge score which seems to have been assembled from previously composed tracks. Some of the tracks used in the film appears in a slightly different incarnation on the library LP Africa, which was released under Umiliani's M. Sala pseudonym on Luto Records in early 1972. Themes include the upbeat and funky main title track, which in the film has wordless vocals, unlike on the Africa release. There's also cues with a more exotic flair that predate the music that Emiliano would go on to write for Scatini's exotic love films with Sudi Araya. So the fact that it's put together from previously composed tracks might explain why the score hasn't had a complete release yet, which is a shame because there's some really nice variations of cues in the films, but as I said, a few versions of these cues are available on the Africa album, which is available on CD and it's also been reissued on vinyl. Are you a fan of the score? Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about the synth style music at the bit where Grace and Williams make love. Did I imagine? I don't know, Mike, did I imagine that? That's something about it struck me as odd the music when they, they made love, I thought. Yeah. It's not what I would expect. I think like your explanation of the way that the score came to be is interesting in itself because maybe that explains the differences there. Yeah, I think he had an interest for synthesizers fairly early on, so probably experimenting with that in in the early 70s and brought some of that in. I'm not sh- I can't remember now off the top of my head if if that's a track that's on the Africa yeah. album or if that's brought in from somewhere else. I know else. I feel like I'm picking you on the spot a bit with that. I just it's one of those funny things where I, I was quite surprised to hear it in a film of that age because I really like synth soundtracks and synth music, but it's it's very early to hear. Yeah. You don't expect to hear it in a film of this period. So I, just one of the things I noted, but it's a nice score. Certainly yeah. 
find it enjoyable. I think it really captures the environment, doesn't it? And the different kind of tonal shifts that take place. And I'm a sucker for those wordless vocals like they got in the <laughs> In the film's opening montage as well. I think that's that's really effective. Yeah. In May 1972, the film was listed in a variety ad featuring upcoming films by Jumbo Cinematografica as Death in the Tropic of Cancer, Morte al Tropico del Cancro. But by the time it received its censorship visa on September 28th, 1972, the Morte part has, of the title had been dropped. It premiered on September 30th with an 18 certificate receiving mixed reviews. Uh, according to Corriere de la Sera's review, Stefan and Tinti try to express their feelings as much as they can by rotating their pupils. Strindberg, who smarter uses other beans, succeeds much better. The film fared quite poorly at the box office in a jallow heavy 1972 season, making about 170 million lira. It did do better than some of the jelly that were released that season, but much less than some of the more successful ones like Emilio Miraglio's The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, which made 530 million lira. And considering the film's projected budget of 170 million lira, it must have been a considerable disappointment. I suppose filming in Haiti would cost quite a lot compared to making a, a low-budget effort in Italy. Neither of the two directors would go on to have particularly illustrious careers. Lomi only directed one more feature film, the comedy The Barons, 1975, which did well at the box office, 737 million lira. And he also directed a documentary on the on a famous hermetic bishop in 1978 and uh, founded the International Film Festival in Manila. Unless I'm mistaken, I believe he's still alive at the grand old age of 90. It's very rare, isn't it? When we talk about the figures in these films, usually like, they're like Tinti or something dead at 59 or in their 60s. Yeah. Morelia's active career was coming to an end. I'm not sure if it was down to the poor performance of Tropical Cancer or not, but it would take four years until he made another film, the sexy comedy La Filiastra, in 1976, and then the sleazy women in prison films Escape from Hell and Hotel Paradise, starring Stefan and Ajita Wilson. That was shot back-to-back in 1980. After these, he apparently left the film industry and worked in TV for the remainder of his career. He passed away in Rome on September 7, 2005, age 79. That's about it. Uh, it just makes you appreciate as well. Yeah, like you said, 1972 was such a busy year for the Jalo, and a title like Tropical Cancer feels like a bit of an anomaly in that selection of films, doesn't it? Yeah. You'd almost expect it to be a couple of years later with the way it kind of diverges into different genre. Like you say, diverting into another genre, but at the same time also missing the Mondo trend with with a few yeah, years because it's a little bit too late. So I think it was about nineteen early nineteen seventies. That was like really the end of it, wasn't it? I know there was other iterations of it in different countries after that point, but really, yeah, like yeah. you say, that it completely kind of come to a standstill at this point. Um, but we're so used to Shelley of like the early nineteen seventies following that blueprint that it's strange when you get one like this that seems to deviate so much because it easily could have been more in that vein while still retaining that Haiti setting. Yeah. Do you want to wrap up your final thoughts on the film? So despite being somewhat of a commercial disappointment, Tropic of Cancer holds up as one of the more intriguing examples of what we might refer to as a Jalo hybrid, a rare example of the fusing of the Mondo film with the Jalo, mixing documentary-style realism with the stylistic flourishes and surreal psychedelic touches of the Jalo. It's a beautifully shot film that showcases its Haitian surroundings perfectly, providing a glimpse into, at the time, a somewhat unfamiliar culture for its audience. 
Populated by a cast of Eurocult favourites, Tropic of Cancer is sure to appeal to fans of Strindberg, Stefan and Tinti, and the supporting roles from actors such as Gordon Filio are sure to entertain. Whilst Tropic of Cancer is undoubtedly questionable in terms of its now very dated racial attitudes, the film is still somewhat of a curiosity in terms of its depiction of otherness, at times offering a brief critique of colonisation and the voyeuristic white gaze while actively exploiting it for entertainment's sake. I think you've summed it up beautifully there. It's a film that really shouldn't work, but I, I still think it does. Like you said, the attractive cast and the, the beautiful cinematography and the, the pacing of it is good. It's just one of those films where you have to sort of sit back and enjoy the elements that you can enjoy and not look too closely at it, because if you do, then it'll start to fall apart. Thank you. And yeah, you're certainly right about that. I think there are things of note here. It's just a case of trying to acknowledge the faults that exist and whether you can kind of get past that when you watch it. We have to acknowledge that we fully understand that some of the elements are really difficult for some viewers. And if you choose not to watch it, then that's fine. It's not like we condone anything in terms of either race relations or the treatment of animals or anything like that. Yeah, I think there's, you know, those red lines. And it's not just about the shadow, it's like any film, people have their red lines about what they can't tolerate on screen maybe based on their own experiences or just things that they find really unpleasant it's just completely dependent on your taste and your threshold for certain things isn't it yeah. different. if you don't want to watch the film then at least make sure you seek out the hallucination sequence yeah, exactly. That one sequence, yeah, you can watch and then disregard the rest. So I, just another thing, I just, remember, I just really like all the peacocks in the film. Yeah. I just remembered, I was like, I'm going to maybe look into that or say something, but I didn't. Anyway, nice film, would you like peacocks? Which, I, they're kind yeah. of nasty little buggers, so I, I don't really trust them. I mean, they look nice, but I wouldn't want one near me. I, might, I don't know if they bite. Maybe you can uh, start a letterbox list. The best films featuring peacocks. I could, uh, that's what I'm going to work on this month. Yeah. <laughs> right, that about wraps it up. We've got some other business to attend to. We had a competition last time where you could win The Rage Within Locandina and the winner is Darren Burrows. So congratulations to Darren. He's also got a podcast called The Last Road to Hell. I believe latest episode is on Phenomena, so do check that out. Congratulations, Darren. And I've just listened to your podcast and it was a really interesting discussion. I think for fans of Phenomena, it might be worth checking out if you've got some time to spare. In our last patron episode, as you mentioned, we discussed our favourite couples. And in the next episode, we're back to our ongoing series on Nia Jallo, where we'll discuss Federico Sampaglione's Tulpa or Tulpa Perdizione Mortali to use the Italian title so join up as a patron and get exclusive access to this and all the other previously recorded episodes we're nearly coming up to our one year anniversary well it's in October but we're going to give our patrons a chance to vote on which film they'd like to see us tackle for our one year anniversary. So keep an eye on the patron page. Yeah, it's going to be a rare opportunity for people to hear us comment on a film that's a lot more well known. So we've had a wee think about the titles that we want to put up for voting. So they will be there soon, as you said. So that's exciting. Yeah, it's going to be a good. Yeah, we have lots of other things in the works. Uh, for our one year Fragments anniversary. So again, stay tuned. And as always, if you like what we do here on Fragments, you can leave us a review and rate us on iTunes. And you can follow us on social media. We're most active on Twitter, 
it's Rachel underscore Nesbitt, also in your ward. And you can also find us on Facebook, it's forward slash FragmentsPod, or Instagram, it's FragmentsPod, or by mail on FragmentsPod at gmail.com. As always, we'd like to thank the wonderful Ozarks for allowing the usage of their cover of the main titles to Seven Bloodstained Orchids for our Fragments of Fear intro music. And that's available to purchase via their Bandcamp at ozarts.bandcamp.com. So I suppose that wraps up for another episode. As always, it's been great delving into another lesser discussed shadow with you, Peter. Uh, we look forward to this. Uh, we look forward to joining you all again next month with another lesser known shadow. Until then, thank you and good night. Perfect. That's excellent. Everything.